conversations. Good day, everybody. This is Darvel. Good day, everybody. It's Rahul. You have tuned into Medical Conversations. Good on you for doing that. <laughs> Today, we'll be talking about multiple sclerosis or MS. So, we'll start off with a bit of a case. Sarah, a 21-year-old Melbourne uni student, is hiking with her friend Tilly in a rural Victorian town when she notices that she's becoming strangely fatigued. (sighs) She's by no means unfit, having just finished the Melbourne Half Marathon two weeks ago. Uh, But she and Tilly often spend their weekends hiking and talking philosophy. But for some reason, on this day, Sarah just can't keep up. Come on, Sarah. A week later, Sarah's in the shower and notices that the hot water feels different on her right leg than her left. What is that? Although part of her recognises that this is probably not a passing feeling of no consequence, she soon forgets about it and refocuses on the looming assignment still to be done. Oh, I hate math. <laughs> Two weeks after this, she's shopping with Tilly at Chadston, when Tilly suddenly asks her why she's been walking funny all day. What's wrong with your walk? <laughs> why is Tilly American? <laughs> no, why not? Sarah, of course, had noticed that her walking felt and sounded different. Especially when they were walking across the marbled sections of the floor, she had noticed her right foot was slapping onto the ground. She had started lifting that leg high off the ground to compensate. So if this person comes in, Rahul, and we have said that this podcast is about multiple sclerosis, <laughs> so it probably would be a top differential. Mm. But a patient comes in, she's a young female, she's got various different uh, multiple sclerosis symptoms. What What's kind of that history that you would take? What, what other questions would you ask to screen for the other common stuff? Aside from multiple sclerosis, you mean? No, no, within multiple sclerosis. That's your suspicion. Okay. But to try and increase your evidence for that, what are the other... Well, I guess I always tie it back to the main presentations of multiple sclerosis, Mm. which in my mind are myelitis, inflammation of the spinal cord, um, optic neuritis, brainstem involvement, cerebellar involvement. So let's talk about those four a little bit more. So myelitis, that uh, refers to inflammation of the spinal cord. And the most common presentation is a spastic paraparesis with no clear sensory level. What does that mean, no clear sensory level? So it means there's no kind of dermatome up to which you can say, okay, so there's up to Mm. T10, her spinal cord is affected. It tends to be more kind of patchy. Okay. Uh, Often uh, they get an itchy sensation and they might also get some bladder and bowel problems when their spinal cord is involved. So that can be urgency or it can be overflowing continence. Mm. Bit of a buzzword coming in here, get ready. The mit sign. Loch mit sign. What does that mean, Rahul? It's when you get an electric shock sensation triggered by neck movement. And I had saw this in a patient the other day. It was beautiful. So I got her to you get them to bend their neck forward all the way into full flexion and then just give them a sharp press over the back of the C-spine and they'll you'll see them suddenly jolt or shock. Right? And so get a, a terrible sensation down their arms and down mm. their back. Mm. So that's myelitis. The next one you mentioned was optic neuritis. Again, a very common one. So that's not just acute vision loss, but also pain associated with eye movement. So two components to that diagnosis. And then often they'll get a scotoma. So that's part of their vision being lost. And it's usually central, central scotoma. Mm, a little island of vision that they've lost, scotoma. If someone comes in with bilateral optic neuritis, is that likely to be MS, Rahul? No, I think you got to be thinking of NMO, neuromyelitis optica. We'll talk about that's an important MS differential. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And so um, if you do get optic neuritis, 90% of patients regain normal vision after two to six months. But obviously, and unfortunately, MS is a relapsing remitting disease, so it might go again after that. And come back. All right, optic neuritis. The next one was brainstem involvement. So often they get double vision diplopia. 
and that can be due to something called internuclear ophthalmoplegia, which That's would a buzzword right there. That is a buzzword, and uh, the physiology or the pathophysiology of that is quite interesting, quite complex. I'd suggest looking at some YouTube videos to understand it properly, but we'll talk about that more uh, when we talk about the signs of MS. And then oscillopsia, so that's appearance of objects moving in a jerking motion, another buzzword, oscillopsia, and it's associated with a particular type of nystagmus called pendulum nystagmus. Mm-hmm. They also often get impairment of facial sensation, and uh, sadly, they also get trigeminal neuralgia. So trigeminal neuralgia is when you get really bad electric shock pain in the distribution of the facial nerve, also known as suicide disease. The main kind of d- cause of that is usually vascular loops, but when someone comes in with trigeminal neuralgia, they'll always get an MRI just to make sure it's not MS. Mm. So when you say vascular loops, it's my understanding of that is you actually get a, an artery that sort of pulses against the trigeminal yeah, nerve exactly. and causes it. To That's what it usually yeah. causes it. And they can put a bit of Teflon in between there. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. That doesn't work if it's MS. Um, mm. There are other things that work. You can do rhizotomies and things that work mm. quite well. Uh, and cerebellar involvement. So if someone's got cerebellar involvement, they're just going to generally complain of unsteadiness. Clumsy, clumsy people. So that's the kind of four discrete uh, neurological symptoms or groups of symptoms that people can get. That's myelitis, optic neuritis, brainstem involvement, and cerebellar involvement. Unfortunately, though, MS also has kind of more general um, symptoms as well that you can't quite pin down to a particular part of the CNS. Fatigue is very, very common. Um, and Sarah, our patient, complained of that as well. And often that's the first thing that people notice. They get more and more tired, and then they get some patchy numbness or something. Mood disturbance. It's a terrible disease, and you can understand why people might have a lower mood, but it's out of proportion with other um, similarly terrible chronic diseases. Epilepsy as well. The increased risk of seizures occurs in 2 to 3% of cases. Uh, and also there's a subtle cognitive dysfunction that gets worse and worse as the disease progresses as well. The other thing um, we should mention critically about MS um, is the time course. So neurology is always about time course. So it's the first thing you need to nail down to get the diagnosis right. And is MS is it, the MS symptoms? Is that something that gradually evolves over a year? Well, Ten I years? Think of more of <laughs> twenty to thirty years. No, no, no. It's uh, it's over a couple of days yeah. and can take a few weeks to resolve yeah. if untreated. Yeah. So talking about time course a bit more, relapse, um, it's a, often a relapsing, remitting disease. And so people, when they've got a relapse, will often get the same symptoms as they did on presentation or maybe new symptoms. And it's, again, important to really nail down that time course. So if something to count as a relapse, how many hours does it have to go for? At least 24 hours, one yeah. whole day. And what are your differentials? Uh, so I was, remember Uthoff's phenomenon because it got a funny name, and it's when you get a fe- fever or someone's in a particularly hot condition, mm. it triggers an MS relapse. Do you know the physiology of that? Uh, I presume it has something to do with nerve conductance, but uh, yeah, so nerves don't conduct as well mm. um, when when they're hot, and myelin mm. insulates, and then if you're particularly hot because you're fever, it's a hot day, then they conduct even less well. And those old symptoms from your old lesions. Um, that you've kind of been able to mask and compensate, but they flare up. Yeah, I learned a cool word the other day, saltatory, which describes the nature in which nerve signals conduct. And so it just means jumping from node of Runvier to node of Runvier, which are the little uninsulated parts of the uh, non-myelinated parts of the nerve. You lose that saltatory movement of the nerve. Mm. Important. Mm, Very. (laughs) Um, Also think about infection. As you said, fever, 
but in just infection itself can kind of weaken someone's um, overall state. And electrolytes are important to look at as well. We once had a guy who was taking like 12 vitamin D tablets or something because he... Loved the D. Well, <laughs> because um, it's often said that MS might be related to vitamin D. Yeah, so vitamin D is related to MS. <laughs> Um, de- deficiency, so he thought he'd overcompensate, but he became very hypercalcemic and developed some pseudo relapse symptoms because of that. Mm. Not like a pseudo seizure; they aren't faking it. It's not real. <laughs> <laughs> not that pseudo seizures are necessarily mm, faking it true, either. Yeah. We won't get into that. Then. <laughs> so back to the case. Sarah decides she's had enough and finally goes to the GP, who promptly refers her to the local neurologist. Pete, the neurologist, listens to the story with furrowed brows. Of course, the furrowed brows had nothing to do with the story. (laughs) He's a neurologist, so he always had furrowed brows. (laughs) When he examines her, his brows furrow further. Ah, there we are. It's a new level of furrowedness. (laughs) He finds increased tone on the right side compared with the left, five beats of clonus on the right side, hyperreflexia, which in this case was reflexes travelling to the other side or crossed reflexes. And he was able to elicit them with his finger. He didn't even need a tendon hammer. Mm. So that's that's good going hyperreflexia. Um, also found some patchy sensation change over her right thigh to sharp touch. And four out of five weakness of her hip flexion, knee flexion, and three out of five dorsiflexion. So some patchy sensation changes and a bit of weakness in, that, in one leg. Mm. So let's go through the MS examination. If you've got a short case, you're in your physician's exams young lady, neurological symptoms, what are you worried about? So let's go through. Cranial nerves. Start at the top. So cranial nerve 2, there's quite a bit you might find or particularly look for in someone that you're suspicious That's the has optic MS. Nerve for That's all optic nerve. Mm. So take me through. What's what's the first thing you do when you're examining cranial nerve 2? Always visual acuity start off first. Get out, get out that snell and chart, mm. and often they'll have poor acuity if they've got optic neuritis or previous mm. optic neuritis. And re- remember we said before, they gave you a central scotoma. So when you're testing their visual fields, particularly look out for that. It's a bit different to strokes. We look for that edge of this vision. Yeah, exactly. This you is get, actually in the center. Exactly. And the best way to look for that is I'm um, actually mapping out the blind spot. Mm. So get the red pin and then just... Take it out to the edges and see if it's bigger than you, mm-hmm. it normally is. Of course, you all have a very good feeling for how big a normal blind <laughs> is. <laughs> um, the other thing you look for when you've got that red hat pin, you say, is this cherry red? Mm-hmm. Um, because compared with the other side, because in the eye that's had optic neuritis or has optic neuritis, uh, the the red hat pin will look less red because they've got desaturation. Desaturated. So Ishihara plates. If you're lucky enough to be rolling cash and Ishihara plates, <laughs> you can pull those out. Yeah. The next thing you can do if you've also got money is pull out your ophthalmoscope. Your fresh Welsh analin ophthalmoscope that you yeah. just purchased. <laughs> um, and you look for disc swelling. Although it's important to note that this isn't something you'll see in the acute stage. Um, but as someone has had MS and optic neuritis or several bouts of optic neuritis um, the disc will become pale due to exonal loss and gliosis uh, and the pallor predominates the temporal segment mm. essential for your medical student exams <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fake it till you make it it's cool but when you get to the real world you need to actually know how to do it <laughs> Marcus Gunn who's that? he's uh, the gunner in your class <laughs> Marcus Ron Aiton Marcus <laughs> <laughs> Marcus Gunn, so Marcus Gunn pupils, um, that's 
what you test with the swinging light test. So that's when you look at one pupil, um, see if it constricts, and then swing your light over to the other side. And in a normal eye, it should stay constricted, but in someone who's got a um, partial afferent defect, it will dilate slightly. Mm. So again, another one of those things you should probably look up online to get mm. a good understanding of it. And it's also known as a relevant relevant afferent pupillary defect, mm. RAPD. Exactly. And nystagmus, so look out for that. Pendulum nystagmus we talked about before is seen in 2 to 4% of patients. This is what so, gives you the oscillopsia, the mm, jerking movements. Mm. Yes. It's described as very rapid, small amplitude pendular oscillations of the eyes in the primary position re- resembling quivering jelly. Mm, jelly. It's a late sign, though. And then, as promised, internuclear ophthalmoplegia. So that's a, that's a lesion of the medial longitudinal fasciculus. And basically what you're looking for there is where one eye can't adduct, so can't move into the center. And that's the eye that has the side of the lesion. And the other eye is kind of moving in lateral gaze, but it's going catch up, catch up, and so it has nystagmus because it keeps having to go to the center to try and bring the other eye back. Mm. That's how I think of it. So you tell them to look far over to the left or to the right, and then the eye that's meant to be looking towards the nose can't get there. It's stuck in the Mm. middle. The most you can also have a partial ionoid, and you test that with rapid saccades. So, say, look at my thumb, look at my finger, look at my thumb, look at my finger, or as I like to say, look at my finger, look at my thumb. <laughs> <laughs> it's very confusing for me and the patient. <laughs> um, but in in if someone's got a partial ionoid, you'll see that their saccades aren't quite as normal as they should be. And it's important to note with an ionoid, uh, your convergence is preserved, so they can still go cross-eyed. Mm. And if it is a bilateral ino, which I've seen before, it's not uncommon, uh, it's associated with nystagmus on upgaze. So the other cranial nerve I wanted to talk about was um, cranial nerve 5, as we said before, commonly affected um, facial sensation. Trigeminal neuralgia. Mm. Moving to the upper limbs and lower limbs. So what are you going to see on your motor examination? Spasticity. Are they always going to be spastic? Not always. Sometimes they will be hypotonic. So spastic is when you're rigid... um, Mm. rigid tone um, so remember there's two ways of testing tone in your neurological exam so one is slowly when you're looking for like cogwheel rigidity particularly in parkinson's disease but spasticity you have to is velocity dependent so you have to move their particularly their wrist um, you move it into supination uh, sorry pronation from supination into pronation quickly and you'll feel a little catch if they've got spastic tone and in the legs you kind of lift their um, leg quickly off the bed and most people should keep their ankle on the bed but their knee goes up but if their whole leg lifts up then they've got spastic tone or they're not relaxed that's a kind of difficult <laughs> line to tread somehow uh, what are some of the other upper motor neuron signs you'll see in ms hyperreflexia mm. so we talked about that before so that's crossed reflexes easily elicitable reflexes Uh, when they spread to other muscle groups. So it's important to be able to differentiate between brisk reflexes and hyperreflexia. That's always pathological when you use that word, hyperreflexia. Mm, So how do you differentiate between brisk reflexes and hyperreflexia? So those things that we said before. Crossing over. Crossing reflexes. So you do a knee jerk on one side and then you see their other leg moves. That's pathological. If you can elicit them really really easily like just with like a tap of the finger that's usually pathological Mm -hmm. or if it spreads to other muscle groups in the same Mm. in the same leg okay there you go Mm. um then i guess decreased power is the other yeah and which muscle groups are typically affected Mm. usually it's your legs more than your arms and uh, it's your flexors yeah 
So. Hip flexion, knee flexion, and dorsiflexion. Getting into that little crouch position. Yeah, all exactly. those are weak. Uh, then sensation testing. So always leave that last because it's pretty takes a long time. You can't necessarily trust what you find, but all modalities can be affected. So the spinothalamic tract and the posterior column, and uh, it tends to be patchy, not dermatomal. Cerebellar signs as well, as we said before, that's a, a discrete part of the CNS that is affected by MS. So you might see dysmetry, you might see an intention tremor. This is interesting, hypotonia. Although you often get spasticity, rarely you can get hypotonia. And that's because there's a lack of the cerebellum's enforcing signals to increase tone. So make, make sure you remember that, that just because someone's not spastic doesn't mean they don't have MS. <laughs> and truncal ataxia as well so that's where you get them to cross their arms and they're kind of swaying a little bit and scanning speech I've never seen this but it's a, a term that comes from poetry readings of all places neurologists are a pretentious bunch uh, where each word is broken up into syllables uh, spoken with varying force which comes from the literary term scansian so high clinical suspicion. How do we make the diagnosis mm. of multiple sclerosis and Insemination Sarah? of lesions in time and space. So this is a take-home message. Make sure you remember this. Dissemination of lesions in time and space. This is how you make the definitive diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. And how do, is that just on MRI or is it just mm. clinical? Clin- clinical and MRI findings, mm. the double mm. whammy. And so if you have someone who presents with this classic stuff we were talking about before and they don't actually have, you know, it's the first time they've come, what do you call it, Davo? So that's a clinically isolated syndrome. Mm. We'll talk about a little bit more about the different types of MS in a little bit. But the actual criteria to nail down the diagnosis of MS is the McDonald criteria. So dissemination in space. So that's when you've got one or more T2 lesions in the MS typical regions, which we'll talk about in a moment. That's on MRI. Or the development of a further clinical attack. Mm. And then uh, dissemination in time. So you need to have that and space, time and space. And on MRI, you can tell if it's a dissemination in time by gadolinium enhancing lesions. So old lesions enhance with gadolinium for a lot longer. No, new lesions enhance with gadolinium. Exactly. So if you've got two lesions and one of them enhances with GAD, then you've met your dissemination in space criteria Mm. and your dissemination in time criteria. Mm. You can also have a second clinical attack in time, of course. Um, So where do you normally find the MRI lesions? So juxtacortical between the grand white matter, periventricular, uh, infratentorial, particularly in the cerebellum, and also in the spinal cord, so four places. And you typically see the lesions on T2 or flare. Flare. Always flare. There are always names in MRI, (laughs) flare and DWI. So flare imaging is a T2 modality where the CSF is suppressed. Mm. Usually MRI lesions are ovoid. Another quick um, eponymous buzzword, Dawson's fingers. So lesions that can be seen... Not Luke Dawson's fingers. (laughs) (laughs) Lesions that can be seen radiating from the corona radiata. So MRI is kind of the foundational diagnostic device in... Uh, MS, but what else can we use, Rahul? Uh, lumbar punctures, I guess. So I did a lot of these when I was on neurology. they probably falling a little bit out of favour in terms of what they add. Uh, they're no longer in the McDonald criteria as dissemination in space, but basically on lumbar puncture, you look for oligoclonal bands, and they can increase specificity of your diagnosis, kind of firm you up. Uh, visual evoked potentials is the other test that I ordered frequently when I was on neurology for a new diagnosis of MS. And so that's a test to look for subclinical dysfunction of the optic nerve 
basically electrical events generated in the central nervous system um, by peripheral stimulation of, of a sensory organ, that being the eye, are tested. And uh, patients with clinically definite MS have abnormal VERs, visual evoked uh, responses or potentials, in 50 to 90% of cases, even though there might be might not be anything clinically. So again, more just to kind of shore up your diagnosis. So at this point, Sarah asks, um, who gets multiple sclerosis and why? She's pretty confused about all this. What's the epidemiology like? This is generally where I like to talk about epidemiology. Yeah, after, right after all the uh, investigation. <laughs> <laughs> in a traditional just, spot. Hey, order all your MRIs for your patient first, then think about who you're ordering. The <laughs> <laughs> um, so females, classically. Autoimmune disease. Two to three to one, unfortunately. Mm. Usually present between adolescence and the sixth decade. So there's a peak at 35 years of age. Uh, Rarely found in equatorial regions. This is one of the great uh, medical research mysteries. And the incidence gradually increases the further you get from the equator, which is why Melbourne is such an epicentre of multiple sclerosis research in the world. Mm. Pathophysiology is poorly understood. We know far more about neuromyelitis optica, which we'll talk about in a second, than we do about MS, even though MS is much more common and has a lot more money poured into it. So I believe to be have both genetic and acquired components groundbreaking. (laughs) Narrowed it down. Unlike all those other diseases. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Infectious agent has long been suspected because it occurs in geographical clusters, but nothing has come up yet. It's cell-mediated autoimmunity rather than antibody-mediated, which is why a lot of the drugs target T-cells rather than B-cells. Mm. Interestingly, though, targeting B-cells also works really well. Genetic acquired B-cells, B-cells, take whatever you want. (laughs) Also, vitamin D is thought to be involved, and that's part of the geographic thing, which is why my patient had an overdose. uh, The lesions tend to radiate uh, from little venules in the neurological tissue, so it starts in the veins and they spread around. Interestingly enough, mm. bam. <laughs> Thanks, uh, So different types of MS. So this is classification system that I'm about to tell you is apparently falling out of fashion, but definitely still used now, so we need to know it for now, unfortunately. Most common one is Rahul. Relapsing, remitting. So that's 70% of cases, periodic symptoms with complete recovery early on, but then every time they lose like a little bit of neurological function after that. Mm. And then eventually... Become slightly less saltatory as time goes on. <laughs> Uh, relapsing remitting sadly unfortunately turns into sec- secondary progressive um, in 85% of patients and that's where they just deteriorate day by day there's no longer that kind of stepwise fashion and in very sad cases uh, this primary progressive where they're like that from the beginning they don't start off with a relapsing remitting no they just go straight to primary progressive mm-hmm. and then there's progressive with relapses which I guess is even worse where you're steadily getting worse but then, but then increasing some days are really bad if we graphed it out you'd understand there's yeah. the peaks of acceleration differentials mm-hmm. and that are crazy and on a brighter note, there's, there is benign MS um, in 15 to 50% of cases. Maybe it's 50, that'd be nice. And that's defined as when patients have remained functionally active for greater than 15 years. So some differentials for multiple sclerosis, uh, there's clinically isolated syndromes where they just have one of those uh, lesions that we talked about before, isolated in time, but not necessarily in space. And in various studies, the long-term likelihood uh, of developing MS for patients with CIS, clinically isolated syndrome, and MRI lesions ranges from 60 to 80%, so pretty likely to turn into MS. Good news is, though, if you have a normal baseline MRI, your conversion rate is 20%. Mm, not bad. Acute disseminated encephalomyelitis. I won't go into this too much, but its uh, acronym is ADEM. And that's an autoimmune demyelinating disease of the central nervous system 
that typically follows a vaccination or an ERTI of some sort. That's why you shouldn't be getting vaccinated. Get, no, don't get your kids vaccinated. Listen to Jim Carrey, kids. Very he knows important. medicine. <laughs> yeah. Jokes in medicine. Two things he knows. <laughs> We've talked about this a little bit already. Neuromyelitis optica. Quite a rare disease, but very well understood now in the last 10 to 15 years because it has specific antibodies. So on the little slip, when you're got a patient that comes in with MS, you need to check for aquaporin-4 antibodies or AP4 antibodies. You need to remember that for your exams. That's going to be vital. Mm. And uh, the differences are that you have a bilateral optic neuritis commonly. So as we said before, if someone comes in with that, think NMO, not MS. And the spinal cord lesion is more contiguous. It's kind of longer, can cover up to four segments or more even. And it's 10 times more common in men. So it's nice that the girls get a bit of a break mm. and uh, common in Asians and Hispanic people. So it's a bit of the reverse. It's mm. further away from the equator. Mm. So closer to the equator, closer not further. Yeah. How do you treat an acute exacerbation? Pulsed methyl prednisolone. That was a bit of a sudden break. We're going to management now. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so pulsed methyl prednisolone, that's one gram for three days is the standard treatment. Does that change the outcome? Are they going to be better off in the long mm, term? doesn't alter their disease course, just helps with their symptoms. Mm. You can also use plasma exchange, but that doesn't make a difference either. So if you've made it this far into our podcast, congratulations. You're officially in the weeds. Uh, You get to know the secret password to the Mm. secret area of the Med Conversations website. Which is disease modifying drugs and MS. Mm. Pet topic of mine annoys the hell out of me when people are like, you know, neurology, sure, it's interesting. Can't do anything. All we can do is fancy diagnosis. It's true, though. You, in, you tell yourself in, that these drugs work. In they don't. Correct. <laughs> no. There is good data that we can now modify the course of MS. Of one condition, of the many. It's a bit of a bad sign because there's about seven different drugs that you can legitimately use, and all of them have different mechanisms. <laughs> so I don't think you know we've quite figured out exactly how to fix the disease. But we'll run... Um, through it quickly. So there's a bunch of old drugs that have been around kind of 10 to 15 years, or maybe even more, 20, um, and they reduce the relapse rate by about 33%. So the first one on the market were interferons, um, and then copaxone, that's a glatirumer acetate, uh, famous for their tendon hammers, um, teriflunamide, that's a Baggio, um, and dimethylfumarate, and that's Tecfidera. So the second names there being the, the brand names. So mm. Glatiromere is Copaxone, Teraflunamide is Orbagio, and dimethylfumarate is Tecfidera. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of detail in these drugs, obviously, on how they work and different uh, routes of administration, but we won't go into that mm. now. But Probably just the general like immune-modifying drug reactions. They're just the uh, injection site reactions and then sort of flu-like symptoms afterwards, mm. almost all. GI side effects, it's yeah. uncommon for drugs to do that. <laughs> really so just there. remember that all these drugs reduce the relapse rate by about 33%. And then we get into the more interesting and potent stuff that's come around recently. So Fingolimod's very exciting. Uh, brand name is Galenia, which is what you might know it as. That's the first oral drug in MS, so that's a big step forward. And uh, results, um, it works so by the sequestration of lymphocytes in lymph nodes. So there was a 2010 trial called Freedoms, which showed that it worked quite well compared with placebo. The annualized relapse rate in the fingolimod groups was 0.18 or 0.16, depending on the dose, compared with a 0.4 in placebo. There are serious side effects. Everything that works has serious side effects. Um, you can get varicella zoster, virus infections, cancer, first dose bradycardia. That was something I had to uh, worry about a lot when I was giving it. 
Uh, there's sometimes a paradoxical worsening of MS lesions. Um, and there's also uh, one case of progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit more when we talk about natalizumab, which is the next uh, drug. So that's known as Tysabri. That's the other big gun that's come out recently, and that's a monthly infusion. It works by being a recombinant monoclonal antibody, as all the MABs are, and it's directed against alpha-4 integrins. So the reduction in the annualized relapse rate seen with natalizumab uh, compares favorably with a reduction seen with interferon beta or glatiram acetate. That were a couple of the old drugs that I mentioned before in clinical trials. However, there's no kind of direct head-to-head, unfortunately. The big danger with natalizumab or Tysabri is progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy. And uh, that's for patients treated with natalizumab for MS. Uh, the overall estimated incidence of PML was 2.1 per 1,000 patients. That's quite a bit. Um, basically, PML is reactivation of the JC virus or the John Cunningham virus, and it's really bad news. But as we said before, anything that works well also has terrible side effects, unfortunately. And then there's a new drug, alentuzumab, which is another recombinant antibody that's just coming out to Australia this year, and that is very, very promising. Some people describe it as stopping the disease in its tracks, and there's some new good data coming out um, that's about kind of 10 years of people on alentuzumab and really good reductions in relapse rates. So that's multiple sclerosis. Thanks very much for persisting right to the end. Mm, Appreciate it. to hear you are a superstar. You yeah. are a superstar mm. and you will be the best. I tuned out about five minutes ago, <laughs> so that's... <laughs> um, medical students around. Cool. Catch you later, guys. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye.